Welcome to the Quack 12 Podcast, the most official, unofficial, Oregon Ducks podcast on the web footosphere. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Quack 12 Podcast or visit our website, quack12podcast.com. If you like what you hear, please leave us five stars on your listening device. And if you'd like to support the show, please visit the Quack 12 Patreon page, where for a measly $5 a month, you can become an official quacky and unlock hundreds of hours of Oregon Duck content. On to the show. Quack. Quack. Quack, quack, quack. Oh my goodness, y'all. It's the true podcasting season for any sports podcast, which is the off-season. It's time for speculation. It's time for us to, to really dive in why we're going 12-0, and 0, why we're going 0-12, somewhere in between. Now, one thing that's got us... Well, at first... It got us afraid when Kenny Dillingham left. I mean, it was very familiar feeling for us Duck fans, for any college football fans, really. But the OC had gone. Uh, this was after, you know, decades of some Cristobal offenses that left us wanting more. Dillingham left, but then an exciting new name, Will Stein, arose. And uh, he, hey, from what I hear, he will be a Duck. He's going to be the OC. We're excited to talk about it. Um, we got a couple of very knowledgeable guests here, starting with Hithliday of Addicted to Quack. Dear friend, how are you doing, Hithliday? I'm well. How are you? I am doing very good. We're here to talk about Jeff Brom's future replacement. Once Lawville, you know, calls his name, he'll he'll return home in glorious fashion in about two years. That's that's maybe a little two years. Long, if Duck fans are lucky. One point five over under of when Will Stein becomes a Cardinals head coach. I mean, Oregon hasn't had an offensive coordinator who lasted more than three years uh, since Scott Frost. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, Again, Scott Frost returned home to Nebraska. Kenny Dillingham to to Tempe. So it's it's all happening. It's all going to happen, y'all. But to break this down, we needed someone who's really really been paying attention to the to this honestly really entertaining team now i really pay attention only just to pac-12 sports but it was hard to to not you know uh shoot a glance over to utsa the roadrunners meep meep they were very fun to watch over these last couple of years uh you know i'm hoping a large part due to will stein we'll get into it so we had to get greg luca Uh, You'll find a lot of his work over at Express News, at Express News on Twitter, Um, a wonderful, reliable source for UTSA. Uh, Once again, Greg Luca, how you doing? I am doing great, Adam. Thank you for having me on. I'm excited to talk about this. It sounds like you guys are ready to do some deep diving here, so that's exciting for me. Absolutely. (laughs) So, uh Jeff Trailer uh, took over the program uh, a couple of years ago, right? But the uh, the real breakthrough has been the last two years, right? Yeah. So his first year, it was trending in the right direction, but it was also the COVID season. So there was a lot of other factors in play, and it was just kind of a wild year for everybody to really know what to make of the success. But it was a 7-5 and five season, which for them is pretty promising. They had struggled to reach bowl eligibility in a lot of years, and it's been surreal to see since then the rise to the 11 game win streak two years ago. And then 
cracking into the national rankings and then coming back this year and taking a couple of tough losses in non-conference, but rolling through another undefeated conference USA season and really taking this program to a level where it's really sort of captivated and engaged the city. And now we're talking about Jeff trailer for potentially some of these bigger jobs and things like that. And this program is just on a stratosphere that it was seemed very, very, very far away from as recently as three or four years ago. So it's been an exciting time to watch the rise. And as you guys are going to be excited to know, the offense has been probably the central part of that, just the things that they've been able to do and how well they've moved the ball in these past couple seasons. Yeah, absolutely. I would characterize it as an offense-led team. Um, you know, in the in the past two seasons in which they've repeated as Conference USA champs, uh, you know, they're 23-5 and five overall. They're 15-1 uh, and one in conference play. Um, just absolutely dominated the conference. Um, got Seth Rochelle fired for beating him twice in a year, um, which was sort of a surprise. Win the triangle every year. Uh, uh, you know, it's been you know a pretty impressive run. Um, this was Will Stein's first year as the you know the head play caller at UTSA, but it wasn't his first year with the program, right? Yeah, correct. So it's actually a pretty interesting story of how the offense came together, and it sounds like it's a lot different from how other programs sort of formulate these things where you know a head coach might come in and bring in his offensive coordinator and they either run that guy's system or sort of a hybrid of the two but given that the COVID year had shut down a lot of activity when they were just getting settled in in early 2020 they basically coach trailer and will stein and a bunch of the other assistants on the staff sort of gathered together and said let's build from scratch what we want the jeff trailer offense at utsa to look like so it takes bits of what Stein knew from the West Coast offense at Louisville, and it took all the stuff that Coach Trailer had done, whether it was seeing things at Texas and his other college stops or going back to his days as a very successful high school coach at, at Gilmer, where he won three state championships and got the stadium named after him. So you took all that and you mashed it together, and it became a situation where they felt like whoever was going to be the offensive coordinator, they would just be stepping into the same system and the same terminology as long as Trailer is there. You're, you're basically going to buy into what they want to do. And that's why they've been able to promote internally. So Will Stein was the pass game coordinator and the wide receivers coach. And so he was still drawing up a lot of the different passing concepts. And so when Barry Lunny went to Illinois, it was a very easy decision to move Will Stein up because he had been part of the foundation of the offense and it sort of set up a lot of what it's going to look like on a play to play basis. And so he was a natural guy to take the next step. And I think they all kind of downplay their importance or their role in things and they try to make it sound maybe easier or more routine than it is but the way they paint it is they'll script a couple of drives at the start of the game like a lot of other people and then even from that point forward they've decided through the week on third and three we call this and on second and seven we call this and they feel like or at least how they say it is that whenever a situation arises it's pretty easy to just plug and play the play that they want to run because they already know what they want that to look like. They've already made that decision. So it's not this one genius offensive coordinator who's having to you know, pick out whatever the magic formula is in a given moment. They feel like they've already got that diagrammed and set up as a, as a group effort. So how much to put on specifically the offensive coordinator is always very interesting, but we did see some changes this year with Will Stein taking over, which I'm sure we'll get into. And even then it's how much is that based on personnel or just matchups or whatever the case may be. But it's interesting to think about how the offense came together and how it'll probably be the same here, even after he's gone. 
Yeah, it is a really thorny question because I, I think there are a number of constraints on what Stein um, is able to call during the 2022 season that I reviewed. You, we'll, we'll talk about them in a bit. And and uh, and indeed, there's a pretty significant change that happens even during the 2022 season. But um, I didn't watch the 2021 season. Stein wasn't the coordinator then. So uh, prior to 2022, when Will Stein was the offensive coordinator, he was the wide receivers coach and passing game coordinator for the first two years under trailer in 2020 and 2021 um when this crew arrived in san antonio they inherited the quarterback frank harris who was already on the team uh in fact i think he was a backup quarterback in 2019 um but basically as soon as trailer arrives he picks harris to be the starting qb and you know it's been his it's been his show ever since in fact i think he's coming back in 2023 right yeah, it's, it's a crazy scenario, only possible during the area of COVID and NIL. But Frank Harris is going to be back for another year. Um, his, uh, you know, his first two years, his, his passer rating is, you know, pretty mediocre. He really explodes in 2021 and 2022, you know, up to, uh, you know, 160.7, which is a phenomenal passer rating. He grades out very well, you know, on my tally sheet as well. Uh, he, you know, it definitely looks like he has full command of the offense, you know, like they're, they're comfortable running the offense through him. Um, I'm wondering, you know, given that, that Stein is only the quarterback's coach, you know, the final year and that Harris is sort of an inherited, uh, uh, player, how much do you attribute Harris's development to Stein? Do you, do you think we can put much on that or is it sort of more of a team effort or, or, you know, Harris's natural talent? What do you think? Well, I don't know if it's Stein specifically or the other coaches, but I do think that it, a lot of it falls on the staff and it's not just the skills development because, for all his success, Frank Harris still has limitations as a quarterback. He's never going to yeah, have the arm strength. There. He's never going to have the arm strength of some of these elite quarterbacks. And there's a reason that he's coming back and he's not considered an NFL prospect because his athleticism is through the roof and he can make a lot of plays with his legs. But in terms of just being able to sit back in the pocket and pick defenses apart and fit throws into tight windows, it's just not, he's not that kind of guy. He, he relies on his ability to make quick reads and the fact that he's been in this offense for, you know, like thousands of snaps now and understands yeah. that that where the guys are going to come open and how he can get it there as quickly as possible without hitting any snags along the way. So they don't have him coming up to the line like Peyton Manning and changing a lot of the plays either. A lot of it is stuff that's called directly through the offense and the, and the coordinator role that he just goes out and executes. And what the part that he's good at is if it's a, a read option play, he knows how to read it and how to make the right decision on that. Or if it's a quick read, he knows where to get it out to. So his development has been pretty immense. And a lot of it is just the fact that they've, pass the ball more and more through his years. And that's a chicken and egg thing. Do they pass it more because he's more yeah. capable or does he look more capable because they pass it more? But either way, we've seen a definitive uptick in what he's capable of. And I think a lot of that does go on the staff and their development, but more than the individual skill development, just their ability to, and this is a theme when we talk about the season as a whole, their ability to identify their strengths and weaknesses on the roster and put those guys in the right situations to thrive. Um, I want to talk about uh, play calling decision making. But before we do that, um, I think we need to get through some background about some of the players. Um, there wasn't a ton of rotation. You know, we were basically seeing more or less the same 11 guys, you know, every snap or at least prior to garbage time, with the exception to the offensive line, uh, which went through a lot of rotational uh, you know, issues, a ton of injuries. I believe I saw at one point they had five different offensive tackles who were out. Yeah, I mean, just like I couldn't believe it. I've never seen, you know, that, that many injury problems. And it made, I mean, this offensive line 
does it grades up very poorly. I mean, Tally Shield, I'll just be blunt about it. Like sure. this, this was one of the worst performing offensive lines that I've seen in a long time. And I spend most of my time studying the Pac-12. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but like it's difficult for me to pin down how much that is um, due to injuries versus like what's the baseline level that you expect out of a UTSA offensive line. Um, what do you think about that question, Greg? Well, it's interesting, especially at the tackle position, because for basically four years, uh, he played guard for two and then tackle for his last two. But they had mm-hmm. Spencer Burford out there, and now he's going to be starting for the 49ers in the playoffs unless yeah. they made a change up front. So I think that certainly they knew they had at least one anchor there, and they've had other guys who could perform at or near an all-conference level. So typically that group has been not necessarily like blowing people away. The focus is always on the skill players. And I think that in this case, probably rightfully so through, through a lot of the years that I've been here, but generally that group was pretty solid. And so it was a major question, probably the biggest question through the spring, uh, aside from maybe one on defense was what are they going to do about this offensive tackle position and who are going to be the guys who emerge for that role? Because Spencer Burford was such a big loss and because that position can be so critical to the team's success. You mean at obviously. the end of 2021? Uh, yes, or, yes, yeah. sorry. So coming into the most recent season that they completed, that was a huge question mark. And then they lost multiple tackles to injuries either very early in the year or even during spring training. It could have been, it looks like uh, Makai Hart was likely to be a returning all-conference guy at right tackle. The league only gives out like five all-conference nominations per team in the preseason, and he was one of the guys that got highlighted for UTSA. And then they're, they thought they were bringing in a grad transfer to start at left tackle, and he got injured during uh, fall camp. So they were already down a couple guys, and then they lost a couple more early in the season, and they ended up starting a converted guard in his first year out of Juco was the left tackle. And then they had a walk on starting at right tackle. And these guys played significant snaps through the season. At one point you'll see a converted defensive tackle, take some snaps over there and they're they're actually going to keep him there because they think he could be a pretty good fit on that side and probably thought that all along, but one way or the other, they were really just trying to piece it together and make it work. And that's why, as you saw, the performance was, was really bad a lot of weeks to be honest, but it was remarkable to me the way that the offense was able to scheme around that and still produce. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely, you know, I'm trying to figure out what the constraints are on the play calling and, and you, you've identified, well, basically the two big ones. Number one is I don't think that Harris is the most talented quarterback in the world. I think, I think he does, does a lot of things well. Um, in particular, as you say, making, making off schedule plays. In fact, uh, you know, as I charted it, uh, you know, uh, more than 27% of their dropbacks result in the sack scramble or throwaway. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, um, uh, more than 16% of their yards uh, that, that they gain um, from design passing plays come from scrambles. They, they come from Frank Harris improvising the play, right? Um, which is like, both of those are very high numbers and usually, you know, indicate, poor offensive line play and 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 i don't think that really harris has a happy feet or anything i don't think he was really like abandoning the pocket but you know before he was he was appropriate to do so he was definitely bailing when it was (laughs) time to do so um it's just that you know that came pretty early and you know i I do think there's definitely an element of this offense especially in the early part of the season in which it's 
Frank, get the ball out of your hand instantly. You know, like I, I'm not even really sure how much he's reading the defense post snap. I, you know, I think I'm not, I'm not necessarily saying that they're predetermined throws, but I think that, that it's like, it's a lot of really short passing. Um, and I think that that's probably influenced by the other aspect that we've identified, which is, you know, the offensive line just not giving them a ton of protection. And I think that they sort of knew that. And that was part of the, the game plan. I'll stop there. Does it, do those things make sense? Uh, yeah, yeah, 100%. And because the philosophy coming into the season and in years prior was a lot of the times to establish the run as well as they could and then look for deep shots. They love to take deep shots when that part of the offense is open and it just wasn't possible. They couldn't hold up long enough to even have a receiver developer out down the field that they could take that kind of a shot. So, yeah, that's where they say, you know, Frank Harris is not changing all the plays at the line and that sort of thing, but he's identifying where he's going to go with it before the ball is snapped in a lot of cases, like you noticed, so that 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 rate of short passes, whether it was either behind the line of scrimmage or within 10 yards was, was much higher during that stretch of games than at earlier points in UTSA's history or in Frank mm -hmm. Harris's career, or even then we saw once you got later in the season, they really had to lean on that because it was the only thing that was there for them. And I don't know, it seems kind of remarkable that very rarely did a defense seem like they came up with a way to, to take that away, even though they had to probably have a pretty good it's inkling that that's what they were going to do. It's pretty hard to is the reason it's virtually impossible to to stop this. I mean, it's a it's a spread shotgun offense. And it's the reason why, you know, this style of offense sort of took over college football about 15, 20 years ago. Right, you right. know, Chip Kelly at Oregon had something to do with it, ironically <laughs> enough. But like, you know, 11 personnel spread shotgun, you know, short passing game with some WCO influences like, yeah, you know, the downside is that it take you know, you're only getting like six, 10 yards of play and you have to march down the field and like th that's another question that i want to ask you a little bit you know later but like there you know the, the downside to it is you have to put together methodical drives which like most college offenses aren't capable of executing you know 15 you know 10 15 play drives although utsa was actually fairly successful about it but i want to talk about that later i want to stick with personnel right now sure. um the other you know and, and then so the last thing about the the offensive line is that there uh, uh the, the the run game is it's really difficult for me to assess. It's, it is, you know, when I, when I break down success rate, um, you know, just, just the simple metric of given the down and distance, did you get enough yards to stay ahead of the sticks? Um, their success rate running the ball is pretty good. It's about 62%, which, you know, in my experience is championship caliber, but it, that's all they're getting. You know, they're getting like five yards a carry right, adjusted. Right. Um, only about 12% of their runs gain 10 plus yards. Uh, like it's not an explosive rushing offense at all. And I think a lot of that has to do with the running backs more than the offensive line. I I, I liked Brady a lot. I really liked the freshman Barnes. Yeah. Um, in fact, not to write your 2023 article for you, Greg, but like <laughs> I, I would be surprised if you didn't write a, is Barnes going to be the new primary running back in 2023 or article right like yeah i'm not sure it's even a question i mean his emergence i think really changed a lot of dynamics for the running game and it sort of coincided with some in, improved health on the offensive line or even some of the guys mm -hmm. who who had been those replacement players getting more confidence and more experience and continuing to develop in their roles now that they've been doing it for a while so there was a couple of different factors there but certainly he looked like a more talented special game-breaking runner compared to brennan brady who had held that role for for most of the beginning of the year. And then Traylon Smith, I think was supposed to be 
sort of a special dynamic game changing talent coming in from Arkansas and just never really got past this nagging ankle injury that yeah. from basically game two through the rest of the season. Yeah, I was wondering. Yeah, it, just, it was constantly an issue that they thought maybe this will be the week and then it wasn't. And then you'd see him out there with the with the medical boot on or riding one of those little one legged scooter deals. And it was just constantly not not all the way there and maybe they would i don't know if they tried to push him too early that he was suiting up and giving it a go some of these weeks and then that might have been something that extended it longer than it needed to be but one way or the other they never really got him rolling so when kavorian barnes came through it it opened up the offense in a lot of ways because they added an explosive dynamic in the running game that hadn't been there before he's definitely more explosive than brady but here's where i was going with this like there i i have a a category on my tally sheet called Yakko runs, meaning yard after contact only. And what I mean by that is if the running back, if he goes down when he's initially contacted, um, uh, then it's a failed run, but instead he sort of powers through it and flips the play to a successful play. Um, and for UTSA as a whole during the season, you know, it, it's about 24% of their more than 24% of their successful runs are that type of run, which usually indicates the running backs are that they're, they're, they're earning their paycheck or, sure. or non-paycheck. You know, like, it's, it's, yeah, they're, you know, they, they really have to bruise it. But then here's the thing is there, yak, you know, I think that Brady, I think that Barnes is like has a little more wiggle than than Brady does. I think he has more potential to bust open a play. I think he has, you know, better top end speed. I think that he's a little better at finding a hole or like bouncing out of play. But in terms of like muscling through to to uh, I thought that Brady was pretty good at that or at least as good as Barnes, you know. And so in that sense, I don't really see a big difference in their, you know, the muscle run uh, sure, aspect sure. of the run game. Does that match up with your observations? Yeah, I think that's a lot of why they got Brady back. He actually had kind of called it a career at the end really? of the 21 season because the, the idea was that Sincere McCormick, who had been a standout running back there, was going to come back for his senior season. And then mm. at the end of 2021, he very unexpectedly decided to declare for the NFL draft and ended up going undrafted. That's a whole other topic of conversation. But the idea was that basically he sincere would have been back for 22. And so then when that ended up falling through Brady skipped spring practice, but eventually decided over the summer, I, I can give this another run. There's a role for me and and I'll have an opportunity. And so that's why he came back in. And that's probably why they got Traylon Smith from Arkansas. And then um, it just sort of didn't, didn't really materialize that it turned into a great running game right away until Kavorian Barnes came through. But in terms of the part you're talking about with those power runs, that's why Brendan Brady's there. He's kind of going to get, get what's blocked for him and maybe add a couple extra on at the end when he, when he barrels through somebody, cause he came back a little bit bigger than I think we had seen him previously. Mm -hmm. So that was sort of the idea. Yeah. That they, that he was going to be able to do just be a solid option and not necessarily provide that explosive potential. So uh, tight ends. Um, I, this was mostly an 11 personnel offense, although they would go to 12, you know, at some times um, the primary dude that I was seeing was a uh, uh, Cardenas. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the other guy that I was seeing catch the ball was Dishman. Um, it's actually kind of funny. If you look at their body types, you would think the Dishman was the pass catching tight end. And then Cardenas, right. who's like, oh, my God, that guy is huge. It's like, like 285 at least. Yeah, yeah. I, that, that guy's a couple plates of puffy tacos away from being an offensive <laughs> tackle, you know. <laughs> right, right. Um, but he's the pass catcher. And actually, he's kind of a lousy blocker, to be perfectly honest. Um, Dishman was actually graded out better for me in the blocking. But I, I bring that up to sort of go along with the, you know, it, it's it's an 11 personnel offense, which sometimes it, it's four wide with the, the tight end split out. And sometimes he's in blocking. But like, I didn't, 
I don't grade out UTSA as getting any better blocking performance when they had the sixth tight end in. Like they that didn't boost their run game at all. Um, uh, does that does that line up with your observations as well? Yeah. So sort of philosophically, in terms of the eleven versus twelve alignment, it was largely personnel driven this year. I think the three, mm-hmm. probably the three best offensive skill players they have are the receivers, Zakari Franklin, Joshua Cephas, and Decorian Clark. And oh, absolutely. And you might as well throw in the fourth Ogle Kellogg who came in when Clark was injured and didn't miss a beat. I was like, how do they have four NFL <laughs> right. wide receivers? Uh, and one of them's right in the bench all year. Like, right, right. And the year before in 21, they had another massive tight end kind of Oscar Cardenas size in the Roy Watson, who actually got a look in some NFL camps as a, as an offensive tackle, which tells you a little bit about his size and skill set. So when they had a different dynamic in terms of the personnel, you saw more 21. And I think this year, the personnel just sort of dictated that they would be an 11 a lot. So uh, that's part of the reason that you saw that split. And I don't really, to your point, I think just because of the dynamics of the personnel again i don't think it made a big difference in blocking i mean it was so cliche but they put a big emphasis on that with the receivers as well that those guys tend to hold their blocks pretty well in the perimeter and then i think from the from the tight ends perspective um they're you know probably right about on par and what what having a guy like dishman or um gosh or gavin sharp was the other one what those guys bring when they're on there you know it's you're absolutely right about the wide receivers and uh and tight ends outside you know perimeter blocking there's not a ton of wide outside runs in this offense but there are a ton of screens like a huge amount of screens sure yeah. um and and it's by far their most success they have a 73 percent success rate running outside screens which is like that's beyond elite um now i tend to think that's probably because the athletic advantage that utsa's receivers slash tight ends have against conference usa defensive backs is a pretty big advantage like i'm not really sure i was seeing stuff schematically that explains that screen success i think that that was just you know talent mismatch like like i mean franklin was just bigger than the dbs that he was blocking you know Right, right. I think that's fair in a lot of ways. And I believe that it sort of tracks when you probably noticed in these games, whether it was against Houston or especially against Texas, that uh-huh. whether it's them individually in terms of just getting open on different routes or whether it's that blocking component, they don't have that same gap between themselves and the guys they're going up against. And it, it shows in the way the offense uh, performs and operates, just that they don't have that same talent advantage that they do through the league play. So, yeah, I think you're onto something there as well. Okay, so let's start now that we got the personnel stuff out of the way. Let's um, let's talk about some of these play calling things. I, since I already mentioned it, I'll, let me continue. It's a methodical offense. I was actually pretty surprised by how methodical it was. Um, or like, or maybe another way to put that is for a team that's as pass dominated as this and for whom I think you're absolutely right. The stars of the show are those wide receivers. Um, I would have expl- expected more explosive drives, like quick scoring drives and we don't really see those actually very you know they're they uh uh so so here's a fun stat it's kind of a mouthful so buckle up um <laughs> utsa in the 13 games that uh will stein called had exactly 100 meaningful full field possessions so by meaningful i mean excluding garbage time and by full field i mean that they started on their own 40 or further back meaning you know they had at least 60 yards to go sure. um so they had exactly 100 of, of those drives. Um, their average drive length was over seven plays. Um, 
which is that's long like that's you know they, they're sort of like grinding out drives um they uh only 20 of those uh, 100 meaningful full field possessions are take three plays or fewer so that's a very good you know rate of avoiding three and outs but only five of those wind up scoring touchdowns like there's only five quick scoring um you know uh, touchdowns during the entire season at least for you know full field drives huh on the other hand, 27 of their 100 drives uh, take 10 plus plays, which is like bonkers. That's like crazy, right. you know, um, and 12 of those they get touchdowns on, you know, and and and, and the rest of them, they get field almost the rest of all of the rest of them. They get field goals. Um, there's a couple where they go for it and fourth down, but don't get it. But like it's they're very comfortable kind of creeping down the field. I I guess that was a surprise to me. Was it a surprise to you? Yeah, and I don't think that this is going to be something that any other coaching staff wouldn't say, but this is sort of a topic that I tried to poke around a lot through the year, and all all you ever really get back is that they're just going to, the cliche of take what the defense gives them. Uh -huh. And a lot of it is, I think, the success that they might have had with the deep ball, whether it was in previous seasons or in small doses with these same players, that I think a lot of that stuff wasn't there, and they just felt like they would have an easier time going for this quick passing, more methodical approach. And especially the first half of the season, like we talked about with the offensive line limitations, that, that felt like that was their only option. Uh -huh. And then even once they got back to a, a stronger baseline on that offensive front, that it just was probably a, a level of comfort that they had with playing that way. And that that's what those guys are, are trained to do and comfortable doing at that point. And it just makes it easier on Frank Harris with maybe some of the limitations with his arm strength. And I think that between what those guys do in the passing game, how comfortable they are with those underneath routes, the timing, they just understood that, you know, Frank Harris is not the quarterback who's going to make these sideline throws on these I mean, outrouts some of them like it's the not field. like he's like right right but the, i don't the, want the listener to come away from this thinking that the frank harris is a wimp or anything oh like, sure I, sure i see him throw some beautiful rainbows i definitely see him throwing you know 40 50 yard passes not like he doesn't yeah. have that in his inventory no it's doubt. just it's just given that the athletic advantage that his wide receivers had over most of the dbs that he was playing i was seeing guys running you know uh, uh open and I thought that there were limitations on hitting those guys. I think part of it is Harris. I think part of it is the offensive line, you know, being worried that the protection is not going to hold up or just it literally isn't and needs to scramble out of it. But I wonder if some of it is ideological. Like, I wonder if this methodical drive thing that I'm watching is that, and this is why I need to ask you this question, Greg, because you've been watching this team longer than I have. Like, is that trailer or stein do you think that that's like an ideological thing where they want to march down the field or do you think that if they had their druthers they'd be you know modifying tempo modifying drive length you know uh, uh you know throwing you know big explosive passes what, what what's your read on that situation Greg? well a hundred percent all they've ever preached is that they want to be able to hit the big shots downfield and then i think that that's something that they would look to more regularly if they felt like it was open for them and i do think yeah i don't want to be misconstrued I, frank actually does throw a pretty accurate deep ball but i think a lot of it is timing based is what i was trying to get to oh with yeah the, totally so with the sideline routes it's not like he's going to identify it late and zip it out there it's just that it's he knows what time it has to be where it has to be and it can meet the receiver in the spot and so because he's gotten so good at that part of the game they have just drilled that to the point where that's what's comfortable for them so ideologically i think it might be just staying in that comfort zone but i do believe that fundamentally their their goal would be to hit a lot of deep shots and, and try to establish the run to set up play action and i think if there's cases where maybe they felt like the run game wasn't working perhaps they felt like they hadn't you know earned the ability to to find those guys down the field or to look to that to that way of passing the ball 
in those sort of formations. So I do think it's an interesting question. And, you know, they are always so guarded about what their philosophy is going to be, especially game to game. But I do think that they were pretty adaptable to their opponents and the things that, that they saw week to week. So part of it is just going to be matchup based and, and that sort of thing. Well, sure. It's, you know, we were talking a second ago about the, you know, the matchup advantage, uh, you know, in perimeter, you know, screen blocking. And there's also a matchup advantage in simply dusting cornerbacks. But, you know, the third way in which I think they had a matchup advantage and I think, you know, contributes to this, but also it makes it sort of difficult to read from the raw stats. But, hey, that's why you chart the games, right? Or that's why I do it, um, is that, you know, so it's it's a relatively explosive passing offense. Like it grades out pretty well in terms of generating explosive passing plays the beta rank system has them the number 34 in the country in you know explosive uh play rate it's uh you know the the number 26th ranked uh offense uh, in f plus advanced stats and on my tally sheet they're getting you know more than 19 percent of their uh you know design passing plays gain 15 plus yards um all those are pretty good numbers but when you're looking at the air yards versus the yards after catch you know about half of their 15 plus yards you know passing gains are plays that travel less than 10 yards through the air and 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 to the matchup advantage what i mean is dude will catch a little slant or you know or a little play in the flat or a little hitch or whatever and then just makes the db miss who's you know, sure. coming to tackle him and sort of like whoop you know loops around him and goes and gets another like 10 yards before the other safety can come and get him and you know uh uh that is the sort of thing that I worry about not necessarily translating to the power five level, you know, he's probably looking at better DBs, you know, coming at him. And so, you know, that's why I've been asking questions about how much they want to throw the downfield ball, you know, and, and actually, you know, get that through the air or not, not through the wide receiver making a dude miss, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a really good point because like we've talked about, I mean, the talent advantage at receiver was crazy. DeCorian Clark's probably their most likely NFL guy. And he's like a, you know, six, four two twenty track athlete kind of player that, that has these huge matchup advantages, especially in this league. And that's a guy that they would look to for those deep shots. Or, I mean, they felt comfortable. You, you saw a lot of these fade passes, whether it was in the oh, goal yeah. line or just sort of back shoulder stuff that they would try in different situations. And so to your point, I don't know how well all of that translates, but I do think that they are doing it because they can get away with it. You know yeah, what I mean? I think, I think that they have like few, they have other ways that they could have approached that when those matchups aren't there. And I don't know, did, when you watched them play against Texas, did you notice anything different or ways they had to alter that? Cause that's obviously a higher level of competition. I mean, they were hitting fades against Texas. I, I just don't know how good Texas is, uh, you know. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. Like, they had such a – that was such a schizophrenic team, especially in their defensive back – well, really, for all aspects. Of that <laughs> but, like – but especially the defensive – you know, like, I would watch super talented cornerbacks make amazing plays, and then I would watch them be completely out of position. Then I think they're really having a hard time with Kwiatkowski's system, which, you know, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with Kwiatkowski's system because he was coaching at Washington for such a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, they're really having a hard time implementing it uh so i don't know like i really like it feels like texas is actually is not the 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 best game you know for me actually the game that i was most like interested in in terms of like a a comparison maybe like pac-12 level talent slash like familiarity with their own system was um was houston Mm -hmm. i actually got most you know the most for the early part of the season that's i'm I'm finally going to get to this uh early late split stuff but for the early part of the season the houston game was so illuminating because like holderson's been there for a long time like he knows what he wants to run hit that that defensive system has been in place for a long time and he knows the talent
talent level that he has and the way that utsa the cat and mouse game in that houston game which like that was a thriller right like yeah utsa played a bunch of overtime games and like they started off with a bang you know um hey podcast listener hey come over here come over here get over here Nice headphones you got in here. Oh, yeah, I like those, Chevy. Be a shame if something were to happen to those headphones, eh? <laughs> Stomped them on the ground, eh? Be real easy to avoid that smashing if you went over to the Quack12 Twitter account and gave us a little follow. Just a little follow, that's all we're asking. And hey, look at that. I hear you listening to your new podcast apps in your car, huh? Driving home, making the long journey feel a little shorter, eh? Is that yeah. what he's doing there, bud? <laughs> yeah, turning your three-hour drive into a nice little vacation, huh? Be a shame if your car ended up on the bottom of a lake. Splash. Splash maybe with you in the trunk of it, huh? Glug, glug, guzzle, guzzle. Maybe all that can be avoided with a little trip to the quack. 12 page on apple podcast all you got to do is go to apple podcast quack 12 give us five stars yeah the internet you got it bud five stars leave us a little comment help other people find it maybe it'll help people find you when they find out that you're gone missing if you catch my drift you seen the posters on the telephone poles yeah, those are those are people that didn't give us fucking five stars. Some of them did, and we did it anyways. And then uh, you know, uh, oh hey, hey look at look at this podcast listener on their long inner inner uh, continental flight, making things not so bad. Not wanting to hear that baby wah, by covering wah. it up. Wah wah, so they say, putting on them headphones. Trying to get the sky waitress's attention. Get over here. Give me more of that Quack 12 podcast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Why don't you? Yeah, you want some more of that Quack 12 podcast, don't you? Yeah. You want to buy some more from us, don't you? Get it. Otherwise, get it. you know, because if you don't buy this Quack 12 podcast insurance, you never know when your plane's going to go straight down into the water, into the old Atlantic, never to be seen again. Glug, glug, guzzle, guzzle. In case you don't want to be th- part of the rock and roller club of the bottom of the fucking ocean, then I recommend you go to the Quack 12 Patreon. Come on, come on. Why don't you go to the Quack 12 Patreon, give us five smackaroos, and for that we can forget about the whole nasty business have you on your way. We'll forget about it. We'll forget about it, all right? Five measly dollars. That's all I got. Now listen up, punk. Because it looks like you're not seeing so good right now. My boss is talking to you, chump. Aren't you chump? Yeah, that's what I thought. That's what I thought. All right, let him, let him go, Mikey. Let him go. In the bottom of the fucking ocean. Ayo! Quack, quack.
yeah, the Houston game was really interesting. Um, and the way that they sort of like, yeah, the, the, the cat and mouse game um, in that game is really fascinating. Look, if you only watch one UTSA game all year, I would actually recommend watching the Houston one. It was, it was you know, cool cool to watch. Um, and I thought that the wide receivers matched up pretty well against like comparable talents. Right. But to your point, I think, you know, as we mentioned right at the top, some of that short passing stuff is just really hard to take away. There's yeah. not always going to be answers for that. And if that's maybe if, at the power five level, it's not as easy for those guys to turn that into an explosive play. I still think that's probably going to be a reliable part of their offense sure. and something that they would lean on pretty heavily. Well, yeah, I know if you need to, you know, you need to convert a third down. Like, I mean, that was, I mean, that was the thing that was interesting about like their third, you know, breaking down their, their situational play calling was that, you know, it was, unless they were in really short yard situations, they were throwing the ball, you know, on like, you know, third and four, third and five, you know, like they weren't, you know, they, they were not relying on their run game, even though they were pretty consistently getting about five yards a carry they didn't believe that they were going to get five yards per carry that, that's the thing that sort of well here's the split here's the here's i've been teasing this for a while but like <laughs> this is this is absolutely bonkers to me okay so the split happens between weeks five and week six um the the, the mitsu game and the the western kentucky game the first five games houston army texas texas southern uh, mitsu um their run rate is 35 percent. just here for the benefit of the listener the the when I say designed run versus designed pass, that means that when the quarterback scrambles for a run, that's a, in my, I put that in the pass bucket because that's what the, that's what Stein called was a passing play. Um, so like, even though it looks like they're running the ball a, a lot more than that, they're not really, it, it was really like a two to one passing um, offense the first five weeks. And here's the other thing is there, it's not very RPO dominated. They're straight passes. It's, it's drop back, throw the slant, drop back, throw the hitch, throw drop back through the flat um and and you know and in many ways watching those that first five weeks was sort of like my my heart was in the pit of my stomach it's like oh, i don't like that offense like um <laughs> but then something happens in week six uh, against Western Kentucky, their second uh, conference game and for the rest of the, the the conference which is that number one the run rate goes up by 12 percentage points it goes up to a 47 percent run rate you know pretty close to being a balanced offense um and in fact in three of their games they run the ball more than they pass it um uh and, and the other thing is that the the rate at which they are running rpos as opposed to you know standard uh non-rpo plays it triples like the, it is a wild it's not so much that the playbook transforms because it's the same like all the same plays that i was seeing against houston i wind up seeing against north texas although they're adding some plays by the time they're playing in the conference championship game um like the joe moorhead triple option play which like that was interesting to see again um but like it's the 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 rates at which they call plays and the sort of priorities for it Number one, they, like I said, they massively increase the rate at the running, even though they're not actually that great of a run team, I believe because they're, they're using the run to set up more of the offense. Like the first five weeks, it's a, we need to pass all the time because it's the only thing we do. And it's the only thing that we can get away with, you know, you know, quickly. And then something changes and they're like, you know what, we're going to run, you know, and maybe we only get five yards, but it, it keeps the defense honest. It means that the, the safeties, you know, play up a little bit. It gives us some breathing room. It means that we can use the vertical passing game to sh set up the intermediate passing game. And then especially in the, the last like four or five games of the season, they really bust open RPOs and the RPOs start getting very creative too. Like, and, and, 
and uh, I'm talking for a long time, but the last thing I want to say too that I want to check in with you about is that like it really feels like there's the growing comfort in trusting Frank Harris to make those decisions. Like this is our senior quarterback. He is capable of conducting the binary or sometimes triple reads, you know, because it's like, you know, uh, keep or hand off. And then if he keeps it, he's got to decide whether to run it or make that little shovel off to the tight end or whatever. Um, like, I really feel like they go from this, like all we can do are short, you know, quick read, you know, passing plays to like a really dynamic RPO based offense in which they're running significantly and using it to set up the pass and set up other aspects of the offense. And I was, I was just astonished that how stark the disparity is. And it's not like there's a buy in between Mitsu and WKU. They just do it, you know, like, like between those two games, there's more than an 11%, more almost 12%, you know, difference in their run rate. Um, I mean, it was, it was crazy. All right. I've been talking for a long time, Greg, first of all, do you know what I'm talking about? Absolutely. And there's a whole bunch of different factors that played into that. And I think that it's important to also establish a little bit more baseline of what we talked about before. If you look back at 2020 and 2021, I don't have the called percentages but i know that it ended up that they were probably close to a 60 40 run team because uh-huh. that's what they want to be they want wait, to be wait, you mean you mean it was it was reverse last year yeah so they, like they when were they had, running the ball like 60 percent of the time yes when they they ran it more than they passed it previous to and, previous and that line was better than the 2022 that the offensive line you were saying it was better than the 2022 line so probably their scramble rate wasn't nearly as high in 2021 as it was in 2022 yeah, I would imagine that that's the case. And a lot of it is because they had Sincere McCormick, who's got all these program records as the running uh-huh. back and was the workhorse guy, and they really were were wanting to feed him. And maybe they weren't as confident in Frank Harris at that point. Maybe that was still a work in progress to get him up to speed. And those receivers were were younger. They were not as talented as they are at the end of their careers here that what we've seen in this season. So they started off because that's the ideal. Like I mentioned, they like the deep shot. They want to be 60-40 run and have it work out about even in total yardage because they're able to pick up chunks through the air. And that's why you saw when we got it to the start of this 2022 season, it was just that they had to do something completely different because the offensive line couldn't hold up. And so when you talk about what changes between those two games, it's the offensive line, either health or the guys that they've plugged in are starting to get the hang of it a little bit and be able to hold up a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kavorian Barnes emergence is the week after that. He's that's against FIU. So right. once they start getting him into the fold, you're going to, you're going to give him the ball a little bit more once you see what he can do with it. And I think that, there's also an injury that comes into play where Decorian Clark goes down against UAB with a pretty horrific leg injury. Right. And, and oh, so God. then that's, Oh God, I uh, saw that yeah. one. Yeah. I didn't get any warning on that one. Like, <laughs> that human beings legs are not. Supposed it to was not, way. it was not ideal. Thankfully it sounds like he's on the road to recovery and is expected to, to be back to form for next season. So he didn't play for that, the rest of the year. No, he was out injury. for the rest of the year. For but sure. on the other so, hand, they did like, uh, were you, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but no, like, go ahead. They put in Ogle Kellogg, and I was like, these guys aren't missing a beat. Like, I didn't think that he was really a downgrade at all. Uh, and well, in fact, like his very first significant play is making an amazing pass breakup on what should have been an interception. That's true, yeah. He, he certainly has the measurables that you would want from a guy to fill in that role, the same kind of size, speed, and athleticism. I just think that the the consistency, the being in the right place at the right time, and they constantly, I mean, they they as much as anybody will try to keep these things in-house, but they highlight a lot of off-field stuff with him, whether it's, you know, being on time and all those little things uh. that coaches are. And so 
they were a little bit hesitant to put him in that role. And I think when they were forced to, that's why they did. And certainly the production was not the same, but he did bring a lot of the same tools to the table. So yeah, it was interesting to see that, that they tried to keep it similar in a lot of ways, but I do think that compared to if JT Clark was out there, that they, they, if, if they still had that option, I think they would have been even more pass heavy. So all of these different factors come together to make it into a little bit more of a balanced offense and get back to form. I think when you think about what are you going to see at Oregon and what is Will Stein's sort of belief, I think it's much more like what you saw in the second half of the season than what they were forced into in the first half. It is really remarkable. I mean, what you're telling me is that between the 2021 season, the first half or the first part of the 2022 season and the second part of the 2022 season, they effectively over the course of, you know, whatever that is, 20 games, we're running three different offenses. Right, right. And it's, you know, it does come down again, like very obviously it comes down a lot to matchups and who they're playing week to week, but you do see that those fundamentals of what their belief is and what sort of things they feel like they're strong at carry over from game to game. I think if, if you ask Jeff trailer, what is his best attribute as a coach? It's the ability to look at two teams on paper and watch the film and identify where you have matchup advantages. And I think that they do a really good job of looking at their roster and seeing where they're strong and how they can translate that to what they do. And so that's why they don't hesitate to, to make those kind of adjustments. Like you said, even without the benefit of an open week in there to try to implement it and rep it a few extra times that they're willing to just sort of say, this is what we're going to be able to do well and let's go do it. Yeah. I mean, that level of self-scouting is, I mean, I don't see it very often, um, you know, studying all the Pac-12 teams that I do, which are often pretty like ideologically driven, um, you know, it's like, well, this is what we do, you know, so this <laughs> right. is what we're going to do. And like what you're telling me about this coaching staff, you know, and especially doing it on the fly, um, I mean, it's remarkable. And, and, and like the RPOs that he was asking Harris to run are not they're not easy RPOs. Like there are some there's, you know, obviously there are some sort of easy, you know, that RPO slant is a big bread and butter play, you know, for them. But there are other ones where it's like, you know, the, the, like, you know, I call him the Joe Moorhead triple option because Joe Moorhead was Oregon's coordinator for two years. And I, you know, I did a bunch of film study on that play. And so it was like, uh, you know, it was kind of remark, you know, that it doesn't really show up during Kenny Dillingham's year at Oregon, but then I'm seeing it again on film for UTSA. And in fact, like it's more, it's over the course of the season, they, they run it more and more to the point where against UNT the second time around in the, the conference championship game, they ran it eight different times, like huh. and with, with all different, very like, and it, it's, it was clear that it wasn't like um predetermined either. Like Harris is making both of those reads live during the play and correctly. That's the other thing is I have extraordinarily few rpo read errors and uh i i just i you know i found that remarkable that they were willing to trust the quarterback to essentially like you know okay the, the offense is going to run through you and that's not what we were doing the first half of the year and i imagine not what they were doing during you know spring training you know when they were installing the offense during spring training is probably not what they were doing right yeah well i think there's probably a lot of stuff that they do in those settings or in different practices through the year that we don't see until they feel like they want to pull it out in certain game situations but it feels like when they want to do something like that it's not that they necessarily put it in that week it's that they sort of resurfaced it that week and so i think with frank harris in particular with how long he's been orchestrating this offense basically the whole time jeff trailer's been here that he's probably seen and done a lot of these different things so many times that he is really comfortable making those reads and i think that I some I've sometimes I feel like it's probably not I probably presented it the wrong way just because this is a different audience. But we talk so much about how great Frank Harris is and how much he's done for this program that I end up feeling like I focus a lot on his shortcomings. And I think I've done that here, too. But what he was able to do in terms of 
making things happen and how he reads the defenses and gets them into these right situations is pretty remarkable. So as much as it's a product of his preparation and all that he does well, he, he does have a pretty special ability to get them in good spots when the ball is snapped and pre-snapped. And so I think that, you know, for Oregon to have that same level of success, they probably need to make sure that they have a quarterback who is, who is a quick learner and is putting in that level of study to identify what they're going to be seeing from the opposing defense at the snap and is able to sort of replicate just that level of understanding of what they have to do. And and it, it doesn't come in one year, you know, we saw that with Frank that he gets better and better over time. Well, it was, you know, I was sort of like, I spent a lot of the time when I was watching the UTC film, uh, you know, drawing lines, you know, like in many ways, Frank Harris and Bo Nix remind me of each other in that they've been starting quarterbacks for a long time. They've been operating RPO offenses in which, you know, they, they move well out of the pocket, you know, they, you know, anticipate well, they, uh, you know, the, the, their, their coaching staffs have been comfortable running the offense through them. Uh, I see a lot of similarities in the running back room, you know, uh, in terms of like having reliable dudes, you know, but who can, you know, who can generate yards after contact, but also can break off some big plays, particularly Barnes. I see a lot of similarities in the wide receiver rooms um, in, in the, you know, t- tall guys who can, you know, just go up and get 50, 50 balls um, and a quarterback who's comfortable. We, we didn't really talk about this, but I should have mentioned it earlier. Uh, the, the other thing that sort of, that impresses me about Harris and you know maybe he's coached to do this I, I don't know maybe it's just his natural inclination is that dude has confidence in his receivers he oh, throws yeah. 50 50 balls this is not a t- the type you know I see the type of system all the time especially studying the Pac-12 where the quarterback only wants to throw to wide open receivers and that's not what I was seeing out of UTSA and it's not what I was seeing out of Frank Harris I was seeing him very comfortably throwing 50 50 balls and having full confidence that his receiver was going to win those contests and like and he was right to do so yeah, it comes down to that. It comes down to that that talent gap and that confidence and a lot of what we've talked about that he does pre-snap to get them in the right situations. The amount of times that there was some pivotal, potentially game-winning play, and afterwards I would ask Frank, you know, what did you see on this one? And he goes, "Well, I just saw pre-snap that it was one-on-one, so I was just going to throw it to him, and he was going to get it." And it's really yeah. like it's not that complicated <laughs> the way he prays yeah, it, right. but like that's because you see that you're going to get that matchup and you trust your guys. And yeah, he's not afraid to throw that fifty-fifty ball. And as we talked about, especially in league play, they're going to be have a huge advantage there a lot of the times so like the major difference that i see you know controlling for the fact that you know one is a a power five school playing power five opponents most of the time and the other is not uh you know in the sort of general i mean like they're you know let's let's just confront it you know there's a pretty significant talent difference between utsa and oregon right like utsa was uh, number 78 in the 247 team talent composite in 2022 um they're literally their highest rated offensive recruit in program history prior to you know, the 2023 cycle was a mid three star. Um, <laughs> and the program hasn't been around that long, you right. know, like Oregon's football program has existed for like a hundred years longer than UTSA uh, has, even though San Antonio was a city that was founded by the Spanish, you know, in like the 15th <laughs> century or something. Um, the, like the, the, you know, there's a significant, t- but in terms of like, I think there are a bunch of things that where Stein is inheriting in Oregon are simply like their linear translations, right? Like he's going, you know, he's got going from one senior quarterback who's comfortable, you know, running an RPO offense to another one. He's going from a great, one great wide receiver core to another one. He's going from a, you know, a reliable set of running backs to another reliable set of running backs. He's going from a reliable set of tight ends to another reliable set of tight ends. The big personnel difference is he's going from, 
a really problematic offensive line to one of the best offensive lines. And I think that opens things up for him. I don't think that's going to like make him feel uncomfortable <laughs> at for all. For sure. For sure. Um, and in fact, a lot of the things that I see that sort of uh, about, you know, UTSA, I can, I can probably put down to, and, you know, as we've been talking about over the course of this conversation, the offensive line created, you know, significant number of problems, which the coaching staff responded to flexibly, not, you know, with, you know, ideological stubbornness, they changed their offense. They changed their offense twice, right. um, you know, in reaction to that. And, uh, you know, that's pretty good. And, and despite having, you know, a, the number 78, you know, team talent composite and B, uh, a super banged up offensive line that like demonstrably affected the, 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 their play calling abilities. They still wind up pulling off the number 26 F plus offense. You know, that's, that's punching wildly above your weight class. Um, yeah. uh, and with the notable handicap of, of having an offensive line constraints, I was really impressed. Like I, I didn't, I was a little worried going into this, you know, that this was going to be maybe like a gimmicky offense or, you know, that they were going up against terrible defenses. I don't think that was true. You held their non-conference is one of the hardest non-conference, you know, schedules that anybody in the country played. Like, I don't think any of those things were true. I thought this was like, I, I this was genuinely enjoyable to watch and especially like the adjustments that they had to, to execute over the course of the season. Um, uh, it was a real treat. Yeah. Uh, and when it was you a real treat. When you talk about how that translates, it's really interesting because what I was, what I thought of right away was when Will Stein got the job here, it was, well, has this guy called offense before? I mean, he was at Lake Travis high school for a couple of years calling mm -hmm. at that level. And other than that, he had just been an assistant and obviously he's still a pretty young coach in the field. So what does it look like when he calls an offense? What are the things he believes in? And it turned out, like we talked about at the top that he's been a part of integrating this whole system, but it's sort of a small sample size still where we don't necessarily know how he reacts to like that change in offensive line and what that, what that means to how he's going to handle that. Just because we haven't seen him in enough different situations. We've seen how they've been able to adapt here, but sometimes there's a case where, you know, coaches become too reliant on their mm -hmm. strengths. Right. And they might take out some things that could have been maybe a little bit more exotic or a little bit more downfield passing because they feel like they have a good enough offensive line to run it for six yards, every player, whatever the case may be. So I think there's a lot of unknown with that still. And I think especially there's a whole different element of this where maybe he came into this system and meshed his ideas with the other ideas to create what we see as the final product and maybe given a little bit more free reign he takes things a different direction and there's a lot of stuff that we haven't seen that's maybe more familiar to what he was doing as a college quarterback himself or at different stops in his career so i think that there's a lot of unknowns and it, i wouldn't say for sure that you're going to get exactly what you got here uh either way but i do think that there's a sort of solid foundational mental approach to calling offenses and the, the right philosophy of being adaptable and and evaluating what your team does well and building around that all right well uh it was a pleasure talking to both of you um it got me even more excited and also bummed that now it's the off season so i gotta wait the whole <sighs> freaking thing um Hitler day thanks again for hopping on the show that was my pleasure Absolutely, and you can find uh, Day's work over at Addicted to Quack, but uh, you loyal listeners know that. Greg Luca, on the other hand, please go over to San Antonio Express News to find a lot of Greg's work um, at Express News, where you can find that on Twitter. And then also, please, please, loyal listeners, go over to his personal Twitter account, at Greg Luca, L-U-C-A, and give him a follow, because, I mean... 
hey, it's the Roadrunners. They're a great team. Yeah, who doesn't want to follow them? Yeah, exactly. And you know what? I, I your Twitter account you... is a blast, especially during basketball games. Uh... Yeah, hell yeah. I'm, and, I'm glad uh, to hear it. Nice. Always good to get positive reviews. I hope to get you back on this show. Um, and, you know, typically it'd be like, because, again, we poached a different one of your coaches. So instead, <laughs> I'm going to wish that to see you in the playoffs. How about that? Oh, wow. What a fun time that would be. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> we're getting there. That's the era we're in. So it's well, when Dan exactly. Laney goes off to coach the Chiefs, then uh, we're going to put a huge trailer and then it's all over again. <laughs> they wouldn't be the first ones to try. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, uh, nice talking to both of you, really. It was a blast. Yeah, likewise. Have a good day, boy. All right, quack, quack, and eat, eat.